no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. We're excited today to have a special episode in which we have a special guest. We have Eric Stover, who is the faculty director of the Human Rights Center, uh, premier interdisciplinary research and policy center that's highly regarded nationally and internationally. He's also a adjunct professor of law and public health at UC Berkeley. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We are really happy to have you here. We're very excited. Uh, the reason that you're here at the University of Oklahoma campus is because we have, you're actually the inaugural lecturer in a lecture series, which is the Clyde Snow Memorial Lecture. And so we're really happy to have you here. And it should be really exciting. We're going to be, tonight there's going to be a screening of a documentary series. Can you talk about the doc, Dead Reckoning a little bit? Yes, Dead Reckoning uh, was a documentary I worked on uh, with uh, Saybrook Productions, which is based in New York, uh, which we did for PBS. And what we decided to do was to go back from the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials and to look at how human rights war crimes were investigated and where they taken to court, uh, what transpired, what are the issues that surround it. Uh, I mean, one of the most interesting episodes, I think, in that uh, program actually deals with Vietnam and the My Lai Massacre mm -hmm. and uh, how it took a photographer to who actually documented it with photographs and later released it that uh, brought the world's attention to the, the My Lai Massacre, which was... Uh, uh, a, a group, Charlie Company, that uh, went into a series of villages and uh, executed uh, a, a number and number of civilians who were mm -hmm. killed and uh, how it was documented. And uh, so we, we try to sweep through history and try and understand how these cases were developed and uh, what happened to them mm -hmm. in the end. You know. I think it's interesting that, you know, because our, our media relationship to uh, material like that, the photographs that provide evidence for something or the video that comes out, has become you know incredibly controversial uh, in, in terms of that people don't necessarily want that kind of evidence out and about because you know it makes them look bad and un, unethical and and they, opens up criticism for horrific things that happen. Well, and it's also you know we go back to the to the first time uh, the name called the newspaper war was the Crimean War in you know eighteen forties in that period and uh, and uh, the. And what happened was uh, an English photographer and journalist went into the war and they actually documented it. Telegraph was finally existed and you could send the information back. So people back in England, because there were British troops serving uh, in, the, in the Crimean War, and uh, they were first time that they were seeing the horrors of war. And if you go through history, you will find the role that photography, cameras – brought home uh, what was usually just transmitted back by uh, the, you know, the, the commanders and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting as well if you shift to 1961, which was the uh, Adolf Eichmann trial, uh, Eichmann, of course, being a, um, one of the, the leaders of the, of the Holocaust in, the, in, the, in Germany and who fled to Argentina 
Uh, Israelis went after him, and they eventually captured him, brought him back, and put him on trial. That trial in 1961 was the first time that there were cameras that were capturing the trial and sending it around the world. And it wasn't until that point, 1961, that the word Holocaust entered the living rooms mm-hmm. and people came to understand what this term meant. Yeah. So yeah. it was really important. Yeah. yeah, I read Samantha Power's book on uh, the the history of genocides. Yeah. Um, she has an interesting history of how the term genocide became just this real complex political football at the United Nations because as soon as you attach Holocaust or genocide or a term like that to something, it changes its legal status in, in the global community, doesn't it? Is that, that how it works? That's correct. And, and I think those of us who work in criminal investigations prefer that, that that term only be used when it meets a clear definition. Mm-hmm. And that t- definition is the intent, the special intent, to destroy in whole or part a ethnic uh, racial group and mm-hmm. others. So that, so that if you're a prosecutor and you're looking at Rwanda, what happened there, and yes, it looks like a genocide, but you're going to have to be able to show that there was a special intent to do that. So the, oftentimes we'll hear these terms used generally, mm-hmm. and they may not really be what the genocide is. Uh, so it's important to keep that uh, a perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's kind of an interesting um, representational problem, too. We were talking about photography and mm-hmm. documentation because that becomes evidence. But of course, it can only shoot a picture of one thing at a time. And then that thing has to stand in for this large case that one's making about the behavior of people, right? That's right. So, yes. so it's 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 cuz I do a lot of work in teaching documentary and you've been involved in making it's just com- the, the idea of like what counts as evidence and what's going to be actually persuasive on a large scale, not just in a legal sense but in the sense of public opinion going in a way that, you know, supports exposing some of the human rights abuses that happen. Yes, and I, and and the critical issue is also to be factual is to make sure what you're capturing isn't just emotive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all do feel that, but what's factual? What really happened? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's been the kind of cornerstone of my career has been the working as an investigator with forensic scientists. I'm not myself a forensic scientist, but working with them to capture uh, to, to, you know, the facts about cases and make sure that we get it right. Mm-hmm. Speaking about these images, when you look back, can you recall some of those early moments where there were specific images that you saw or a specific moment in time that you think has had a deep impact on you and led you down the path that you've, that you've taken? Well, it may be my age and showing it here a little bit, but uh, it was uh, as a child, uh, actually growing up in Missouri and uh, going to the theater. We actually would walk there, the cinema, and uh, seeing those reels from World War II uh, where you were actually sitting and seeing it black and white before they would show the films. And uh, and I think that uh, was very, you know, affected me quite a bit. And an and interesting shift in this is if we go back to 2007, that's when the smartphone hit the market. Mm-hmm. And then if you move forward to 2013, that's the year in which more than half of the population that had mobile cell phones had smartphones. And now all of a sudden, 
you're getting journalists, citizen journalists, who are filming these things. And that's which your reference to now we're getting inundated with mm-hmm. so much of this. Yeah. Uh, it can be numbing. It yeah, it's, yeah. I, I was going to ask about that. I, I do think that we're at a saturation point where there. It feels like there are people that uh, adamantly try to stay away from seeing certain images. Right where before it was like limited access, and now it feels like there there might be so much access that people have purposely chosen to try not to interact with with specific pieces of content. Yeah, and I, you know, just related to my experience and working is that. Um, I have worked later in the podcast. We'll talk about Dr. Clyde Snow and a French anthropologist here from from Norman, and and I worked with him since 1983. And uh, we get to we would work all around the world or in the United States. And the the issue there is when we're doing this work, we're working with families. We actually get to be with the families. Of victims of you know disappearances or or whatever, and that gives you meaning. I become concerned uh, at Berkeley. We actually have an international human. We have a human rights investigations lab where we have students now about eighty six of them, twenty different disciplines, thirty different languages because it's Berkeley. It's quite, mm-hmm. and they work on specific cases on social media. So they'll be looking at uh, a court will send a a, a somebody's taken social media, they've taken their phone, and they filmed a chemical weapons a- attack or alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria on a hospital. And the students, we train them to be able to go and geolocate where that is and to get the metadata from the information so they can come back and say, yes, this was or this was not what it's claiming to be. My concern with the students, and, and they know this, is that, is that they're doing this in two dimension on the computer. They're not actually getting the human dimension. Mm -hmm. And I think this is another issue that we're dealing with, with this stream of social media that can be violent that's coming in, Mm -hmm. is sometimes it can numb us to what's actually happening. Yeah, or a false sense of truth or... That's right. Yeah. That's That's right. Or manipulation that takes place. So, I mean, as long as you mention it, what what are your... What are your thoughts about the way that social media has come to be used in our culture and around the world? I mean, it does have the potential to make it very hard to hide things, which is, you know, great in terms of power of individual people who are being abused or oppressed. But then it has all of these other effects that people are suspecting that are making it harder for them to be empathetic. You know, I think it's yes. And I think it's um, well, that I think we'd have to look and, you know, we'll we'll look and see, you know, we'll have to study that in Mm -hmm. a sense, I think. But I do think if we all look at our own selves, that we are addicted to our cell phones. Mm -hmm. And how many times are we looking at our cell phones? And I think that and I'm just as bad as everyone else. (laughs) But I do sometimes make me pause and think that. Maybe I'm not thinking as deeply as I should about mm-hmm. certain topics, or as we're seeing happening across universities uh, in the United States, is there less and less history courses, mm-hmm. less and less courses in the humanities, and some are you know being closed, and uh, and I think that's a shame mm-hmm. because uh, we need to understand the human dimension of of these of these terrible things that are happening mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. So what is it that you think, given the environment that we're in, how do we go about extending people's understanding of the humanity of people who they don't think are necessarily in their group to start off with? 
Is there, is there, I mean, for some people, there's a religious dimension to it. For some people, it's a non-religious spiritual dimension. For other people, it's just the pure ethics of caring for other people, whether they're in your group or not. How do you think, because you've been working with this issue for a long time, about people who are capable of doing atrocious things to each other. So what, you know, it's like when you mentioned Eichmann before, I was thinking that's kind of where that term banality of evil kind of came from. But you know, do you think about it in those terms? Is that the threat? Or I, I think it. I think filmmakers can do a great deal by showing the empathy side of some, they can deal with a past atrocious crime and uh, be able to to capture that and convey that so people understand. I think fiction writing, of course. Uh, my concern in my small world is really I want to get students out. Mm-hmm. And we give out at the Human Rights Center at Berkeley, we give out fellowships and we do about uh, 18 to 20 every year. Get students out working with local organizations around the world uh, so they get this exposure themselves. Mm-hmm. And, I, and oftentimes that's all it takes. Uh, the other thing we keep in mind is, you know, we have so many migrants here who've come and fled from violence uh, and they know or their families, their parents, that this is get, that it's getting transmitted, that we shouldn't be so pessimistic because of the, in, you know, the, the influx of social media and violence and so on. I think it, it's just that we need, particularly I think as educators, we need to be clear about giving historical perspective. We need to develop ways to get our uh, students that out working in the field. A little bit, you know, let's, uh, you know, like Peace Corps was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you, so are you working now primarily with graduate students who are doing this kind of work or a mixture? Or? We're a mixture. They're uh-huh. both graduate and undergraduate students. Uh, and they, what they will do, they'll work for an organization like Human Rights Watch or mm-hmm. Amnesty International or, or a court or a UN commission where they'll be asked to take uh, social media, uh, they'll be given it and and verify it in some way mm-hmm. and get back to them. And what is really, I think, in this political atmosphere that we're in, and uh, you know, nationalism growing around the world, and students really want to be engaged, mm-hmm. and they get great satisfaction out of doing this, and they actually get to see that they do this investigation. We train them to do it so it's actually legally admissible because you never know. It might be a court doesn't get set up for three or four years later, but you want that to be legally uh, a court admissible. So uh, they get to see a final product. Mm-hmm. And you don't often get that when you're an undergraduate you know, or, or a graduate until you finish your PhD mm-hmm. or your master's. Well, yeah. particularly if you're working with people from a number of different disciplines, they're doing all sorts of different kinds of work to That's put right. together. That's right. So it's kind of interesting because you know, we're, we're – talking in a journalism college and there's a tangible increase in interest in journalism like i mean basically the way we put it simply is our numbers are up right so people are invested in something that has really gotten beaten up pretty severely mm-hmm. and i think you know history has that same potential if if again it can become an important component of how we you know, reflexively think about how you come up with explanations for why things happen in the world the way that they did. Yeah, I was going to ask if, in from your perspective, has the uh, collective motivation from the student body that that's interested in in human rights or activism at your school, you know, have you seen shifts in like profiles of who's interested in it, or potentially why they're motivated to want to pursue this from an academic perspective? 
I, I, and Berkeley is a very diverse place, so that's why we have students with so many language backgrounds right. and so on. So a lot of them feel that uh, they're either first generation or second generation, and they they want to do something, uh, and they uh, want to be engaged because they're listening to their parents talk about it, and the, and the and their parents' friends and so on. So they 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 really want to. Uh, you know, do hands-on work, and I think uh, that's that's really important. The more we can encourage that, the better. But I think at the same time that they're doing that, there is so. For example, if we have a student who is a group of students who are investigating an attack on a hospital or clinic in Syria and so on, uh, we will encourage them. You well, you see the mosque in the background, or you see, uh, look up the history of that. Or, you know, tell us the, the history of Aleppo. What's the culture there? So they also are exploring that and not just simply the, the, the potential crime itself. Mm-hmm. I, just on a personal note, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, one of the things as I was like getting to know Clyde Snow and the kind of work that he was doing, there's, there's just such a darkness in a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And so how do you handle that, the, the emotional part of that? It's sort of like, I mean, there are journalists who are subject to extreme trauma, and sometimes you meet some of these, like, combat photographers and stuff like that, and they're kind of destroyed people. I mean, they're, they're doing great work, but the work they do has kind of destroyed them. So how do you take care of that? Or do you talk to your students about this process? Or Oh, yes, definitely. And uh, I would just say, and I've worked with a number of uh, well, I should say not number, but uh, two war photographers. One in particular, uh, particular Gilles Perez, uh, and we worked in Bosnia for for years. And I think what's important is uh, you don't do the Ghostbuster effect, uh, where you simply bust in and you're going to reveal the story, and then you get up and you you know you, you helicopter out and that's it. Mm-hmm. So what I've tried to do working uh, with, with Clyde Snow and another project is actually go somewhere and spend time working and always working with a local organization. Mm-hmm. So uh, I can give you an example, okay. for example. So several years ago, I went to study what was happening with the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda. And the Lord's Resistance Army was abducting children and taking them into their ranks. Um, the children would sometimes escape. Uh, and sometimes they would be captured, and they would be brought to ch- ch- child reception centers, and there were about 11 of them. They'd hold them there, uh, run by NGO, local NGOs, and then they'd look for their family members so they could return. Mm-hmm. But they had to deprogram them in a sense. Mm-hmm. This was Lord of the Flies. Yeah. So that they had to get them – because some of these are young boys, 11 or 12 – uh, you know, who can carry an AK-47, and that's because uh, it's light now. We get plastic weapons and so on. And um, in one one visit I made, it was a difficult, but I got there, and I met in this town, Padere, and I went into the child's reception center there, and I asked the, the woman uh, who was running it, what's your dream? And she said, I'm worried most about the young women who come out with children. Because in the culture here, they're not really accepted back into their own families. And so they're, they're, we have them here with their children. We don't know what to do. And, um, and I said, well, what do you, what, what's your dream? And she said, I'd like to set up a, an academy, a girls' academy for them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, my team back in Berkeley, we worked with the MacArthur Foundation. And we set up the Padere Girls' Academy with uh, 
uh, Alisa Akan. And now that school has had these young women with their children go through. So I think the way is to focus and stay uh, and work and understand what the local needs are. Don't you go in as a ghostbuster and think you know how to mm-hmm. solve this. You learn from what the real needs are, and that's that's what's important. Yeah, that's, I think, to me, one of the most fascinating things about anthropology as a field is how it reinvented itself to kind of, so that people were talking across instead of studying down. Yes. You know, it was yes. like a really important historical change in yes. how people thought about each other. Yes, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Clyde Snow yep. because we're, you know, we're <clears throat> all talking as if we know him because we, we do or did. And, well, uh, I mean, we being you guys, yeah, right. I, I, would, I would love a, a <laughs> explanation. Yeah. Or so you can ask the questions because the, you you can get the, uh, the the skinny on it. for. Well, that, it would be helpful for me to just to have a maybe two or three minute explanation of the his background and the type of work that he does. Well, Clyde Snow, uh, who uh, died uh, uh, in 2014, uh, he was in his mid 80s. Uh, Clyde Snow uh, was a um, worked. I guess his really first real job. He's a, he's trained as a physical anthropologist and then went into forensics, so uh, investigating crime scenes. He began working at the Federal Aviation uh, Administration here in in Oklahoma. And uh, his first work was very much focused on safety within airlines. So he was looking at, you know, there's 206 bones in the human body. Uh, how do uh, how do we, you know, how do when there's the danger on a plane? How do people move through the through the plane? Uh, how, well, where's the safety equipment? How do you open the doors and all of these things? He did very important work on seatbelts, even in, for cars. We're back talking back in the late '60s, early '70s, and in doing this. Um, He did this for a while. He worked on airplane crashes. I mean, there's so much that he did. And then eventually he was called into cases of skeletal remains that would be found. Somebody's a hunter in Oklahoma going out in the fall and finding, you know, some bones. And he'd be called in and he'd do an investigation for the medical examiner office. And he got quite a reputation for being really you know, the best, one of the best in his field. And what happened to me, I was working at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I'd set up a science and human rights program in Washington, D.C. And for the listeners, uh, the the this organization publishes Science Magazine. It's kind of the premier science organization. And uh, uh, I received a visit, a request from uh, in Argentina from the Commission on the Disappeared uh, which this was the end of the war, uh, end of the, I should say, military rule, which went from 1976 to 1983. And they wanted, uh, asked if I'd bring a forensic team to, to Argentina. And I call this La Pregunta. That's the question they, asked, they sent to me. And I, I know nothing about forensics. So I called the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and they said, call Clyde Snow. So I call Clyde Snow, Norman, Oklahoma, and he's in his house, and uh, I call him, and uh, typical Clyde, uh, he's, uh, he listens and so on, but he had to put his phone down. It was a landline, and he went to get himself a cup of coffee, and I could hear him walking back <laughs> to the kitchen, and he sits down, and I said, look, I've got this request to take a forensic team to Argentina to help investigate the, in, the mass graves of the 
thousands of people who disappeared and were buried in unmarked graves. And uh, uh, would you help me with this? Because I know nothing about it. He called me back. He said, let me think about it. He called me back a couple days later and he says, I'm yours. And he put a team together and I flew down with his team to Argentina. And that began uh, for me uh, 30 years of working with him, first in Argentina. And what we did in Argentina is we tr went to the university, the University of Buenos Aires, and we got students to come and begin doing the exhumation. So he trained them, wow. brought in forensic odontologists from the states and radiologists and all, and trained them to where they are now, have just celebrated their 35th anniversary, this team. And they've now worked in over 24 countries around the world, training other teams. And so you blueprinted. This was the brilliance of this guy. He said, you know, let's take students. They're going to be out there exhuming these graves, removing the skeletal remains, trying to identify them, determine manner and cause of death. And um, they're <coughs> going to be – they're going to be uh, – uh, become experts in this, and they did. And they, and then we went on to Guatemala. There's a Guatemala forensic anthropology team. So uh, it was his foresight, and the fact that he wanted to work with students. And these are young people who are exhuming the graves of their older brothers and sisters who disappeared under under military rule. Um, so then we, the the work went on to Rwanda. It went to Bosnia. Um, and, uh, you know, many countries around the world. You know, it, it, as I got to know him, it, one of the things that became clear was that part of his genius was that for all of these people, there's a story. Yes. And, there's a, and, and it's that story that he's after, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way you look at it is you approach as a team, you're made up archaeologists, forensic anthropologists and others as you're coming up. And usually the way you can tell what a mass grave is potentially is that it's uh, the, the soil has drifted down. So you see kind of a dip in the earth. And then you begin investigating it and uh, archaeologically. And what you know, what you have a sense is this is the last chapter of maybe, you know, the lives of 200 people were buried there. And you entering into that space to do this work is one in which you're going to be telling the last chapter of their life. So you want to get it. The only other people who know what happened are, are those who pulled the trigger. And so you want to get it as done as professionally as possible. So, so, and then what you'll have is the families are usually around the graves. What we would find in Guatemala in particular was that we were training Guatemalan university students to do this work. And the families in a village would come down. They would first help the team. These are their, their own students from the university. They were so proud that their students were doing it. They'd bring the tools down. They'd bring lunch to feed them. And then you have to go to their house, to the villagers, whomever, and their home and talk to them about, did your, did your daughter or your son have any broken fractures? Were they left-handed or right-handed? Um, any diseases that, that might affect the bone for the help with identification? You might ask, oh, does your daughter have a bedroom here? Yes. Can we go in? Is a hairbrush? Ah, is it that's your daughter's? Yes. Um, well, could I take a hair uh, follicle? And you could put on your glove and you take a hair follicle, and that's rich in DNA, and then you can extract DNA from the bones, 
and hopefully come with identification. And the reason I'm saying this interaction with the families is what you, what it does is that you're giving something to the families and the families are giving something to you. So you have, it gives you meaning and it gives, also it gives, it brings respect and professionalism to the task and the, and the families get to be there and participate. Mm-hmm. The are, they, are these, what's a time frame on doing a project like this? Is this years or months? It, it is years. There was uh, in Argentina, for example, a mass grave that took probably two years till wow. it was finally completed because you may begin identifying some of the, the victims that you've exhumed, uh, but you're going to have others that it's going to take outreach into the community to get uh, DNA samples to do. Uh, now, maybe listeners know of the Srebrenica massacre that took place in Bosnia in the mid-1990s. And uh, they uh, that were about uh, 8,000 men and boys, Bo- uh, Bosnian Muslim men and boys who fled from Srebrenica, the town they were, they were in because the Serb forces were moving in. And um, when those graves were exhumed, they b- began a big DNA identification process. And now... Uh, over 7,000 of those men and boys have been mm-hmm. identified and the remains have been returned to the families for proper burial. And it's been used in evidence in over a dozen cases mm-hmm. at the Yugoslavia Tribunal. You mentioned uh, teaching students to not use, you know, kind of a, a ghostbuster mentality. Um, I imagine that part of doing this is building trust with the local community. You know, has, right. has, there, has there been times where uh, maybe there was more he- hesitancy to allow a team like this to be built up, or or does this usually start with a local community inviting in or you know requesting to have a team that that helps uh, you know do these forensic science? That's an excellent project. question. Excellent question because that that. It happens all the time is that when you're going into a community, particularly a rural community, and you're saying, well, we're going to do this work, this exhumation, and um, we're going to be do DNA testing. And what's DNA testing? What does this mean? So it seems very alien. And then um, people are, you know, uh, unsure about because they still don't trust their government, you know. So it's so it's always best that you have a local organization or a community or even say the mayor or whoever in the village or the town who who welcomes everyone. Um, when I took this first forensic team down to Argentina, I went ahead of the, from the United States. I went ahead and I met with all the local human rights organizations because I knew they were thinking, why are you bringing to Argentina, this forensic this forensic team, when the U.S. supported our military, mm-hmm. you know, rulers, and I would have to say, well, it's not because we're proud of this, but our country. Remember, this is the 1980s, a very violent place, and that's how forensics grew out of the violence we had in this country. So it's not something you take great pride in, mm-hmm. but I think it's important. That's why it's always important that these teams. Argentina, Guatemala, and elsewhere, they train local teams so they can carry out that work. 
Mm-hmm. That's really important. I think that's such a, an impressive piece of the whole story of this is the idea that it's you know the, the it's it's the beauty of education that it doesn't cost you anything to share what you know with someone else. So you can actually expand the pool of people who can do this kind of work. Yes. Yes. It's, now there's technology that's kind of problematic, and maybe sometimes people watch weird television and get strange ideas in their heads about how forensics works. I don't know if you run into that, but uh, but I know that when I talk to students and talk to them about you know that fiber evidence blood splatter stuff you see that kind of doesn't work yes yeah it would be nice if the, some of those television programs have some more uh, you know very solid forensic scientists mm-hmm. advising them yeah that, yeah that would be a good thing yeah so so the, so I, I have to say one other thing about Clyde because he was also one of the most generous human beings and just like like he was kind of an interesting throwback in a way to to a kind of like I don't know. It's it's uh, he he you know he he had the hat and the way of presenting himself, and he was always he was very very easy to get to know. Yes, he was very generous the way that that he talked and um and the way he thought about knowledge, the way he told stories about the work that he did, um it was just kind of really engaging. Yes, and it was it was just kind of amazing to be around him when he was, you know, because by the time I met him, he was you know close to the end of his career and and but all the stories were there and they were just amazing. Clyde Snow is a little bit of like old school walking into new school. Um, he was born in January of 1928 in in, uh, in Texas. Uh, his father was a doctor. His mother was from Wisconsin, and she wasn't a nurse, but they eventually moved to Rawls, Texas, in the, in the panhandle. And he was a country doctor, his father. And so what would happen in the evenings, uh, he would uh, pack up, uh, they'd have chicken and biscuits, and they'd have the medical supplies in their their Chevy sedan, and they'd head out in the countryside. And Clyde, only child, would be present while his father either delivered a baby in a in a ranch house or farmhouse somewhere, or attended to someone. But there were times in which he was there, and he would see a stillbirth. And this mm-hmm. is a young five six year old, or he would see someone who died, or was dead. In, you know, in the house. And uh, you can always imagine him, and I wrote a book about him, I co-authored a book about him, and, you know, he was a young boy watching this. And I think that really fueled his, some compassion in him at a very young age. And that's what you see as he, uh, as, as he, as he went on in his career. Mm-hmm. He always was, I am a scientist first, I collect facts, uh, but there was always a side to him where he cared deeply about the families and what he was doing. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think that was what connected to the stories that he would connect. And then that became very powerful stuff when he would have to, you know, when it eventually got into court situations. Yes. Because it was very persuasive for people, right? I think in, in Argentina, that was one of the places where it was the stories of several individuals that eventually was able to create quite a political firestorm of yes. you know, who was responsible for what had happened. Well, and they were also seeing cutting edge, uh, if you will, forensic anthropology, uh, because back then when he was he testified the trial of the military junta, uh, DNA analysis wasn't wasn't possible. But when he presented that case uh, of a young woman and his identification of her, 
this had never happened in a courtroom in Argentina before because they, they, when they had the trial of the military junta, the military leaders, they uh, opened it up to the public because usually trials were in camera. They were cl- kind of closed. And um, so all of a sudden here is this guy uh, with his Texas drawl. Um, would translate from from English to Spanish, testifying, showing how he identified this young woman and ending his presentation with her photograph. And in the courtroom was the wife, I mean, sorry, the mother of the victim who was being shown, and the only sound you heard in the courtroom was her sobbing. Mm-hmm. And he... Uh, he was that was really kind of a monumental part of the of the trial that he was able to show mm-hmm. this, and that that then showed. Come on, we got to continue with this work because we can't forget about these pe- these people who are disappeared, and we need to we need to continue and do the exhumations and identify them for the families, uh, for uh, accountability. And also to set the historical record straight. Mm-hmm. So, where do you think that the, the kind of work that that you learned how to do through him, and that you're continuing to do, because um, it sure seems sometimes like there's a lot. You know, every time I hear about a you know supposed massacre site, I'm just sad that Clyde's not still with us That's to right. go to go you know have at it. Um, is this this is something that's? Do you think that the the pedagogical side of it is expanding sufficiently that that it's something that you know we're kind of responding to internationally now, or is there still just like way too much work to be done? There's so much work to be done, and unfortunately, we you know it's it's a, it's a violent world in many places, and that's. Uh, but I do think that. You're seeing now there have been many more courts that have been established, international courts. You're seeing far more national courts and countries. Once they get out of the totalitarian or authoritarian you know, rule, uh, what you see is the local organizations are demanding justice. No, we're not going to forget this. We mm-hmm. want an investigation to take place, and you're seeing that more and more. And that's also because of social media too because ideas are being spread, and, and that's the positive mm-hmm. side. Um, so I think it's it's um, th- there's definitely an effort now today. You will have far more of these forensic anthropologists working around the world than you did 30 years ago by far. Mm-hmm. And it's not a profession that's uh, fading away. Yeah. The only thing is, this kind of a and you you can tell me whether this in my you know amateur perception of this that you know part of what's happening with all of our digitization of information is it's kind of like attacking history in a way because. It's not going to be there in the same way it had to be before. On the other hand, for some reason, authoritarian dictatorships seem obsessed with record keeping. And so there's like immense – for some reason, they want to keep immense piles of information about the atrocities they commit. So those two things are kind of like struggling against each other in the world we're in now. That's right. And uh, and also, too, because if you take that information, if those – you know, the, 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 the offenders uh, that are, are – collecting this information, digitize it, and they can take it away as mm-hmm. well very quickly. Uh, but there are techniques now. There's a, there's a program called the Wayback Machine. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you can go back and look at old URL sites and mm-hmm. gain information. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a double-sided sword. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I actually think that site is completely fa- well. The whole site, the Internet Archive idea, yeah. is fascinating because of how it is. It essentially becomes like the memory of the digital age that otherwise doesn't really exist anywhere. Yes, you know, and that's you know one of the things because we have such an uh, immense amount of digital information, but so it's become the sea that you can't tell one thing from another anymore. And that's why we need, and that's what we're trying. We're doing at UC Berkeley is to train students to be able to go in and say no. That what was posted, it show it did not take place in Syria. That took place in you know um, Egypt mm-hmm. four years ago. Yeah. Somebody's putting fake news out. That is the real danger that we're running into. Is mm-hmm. this fake news? Yeah, 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 yeah. And getting people to actually like stay caring about the difference between exactly. the legitimate information and the That's fact right. that some of it is fraudulent right. out there. So so what's in your future? What are you what are you working on now that's got you excited about the kind of work that you're doing? Well, one thing I'm looking at now and I'll actually be going up to Tulsa later in the week is um, looking what's going to happen with the Tulsa race massacre of 1921 investigation that's taking place and they're now a committee has been a scientific committee, and they are looking at uh, possible uh, burial sites that may be uh, there in Tulsa. Uh, and uh, you know, you're going back a hundred years, and they're going to do ground penetrating radar. And I think it's a very step by step process. So I, uh, if all works out, I may be working on a documentary about uh, mm-hmm. that investigation mm-hmm. and and the, and how it how it interfaces with the community. Mm-hmm. And what does this, you know, what does it mean? Yeah. For people who aren't familiar with it, can you just give a very short, like, what happened? Well, the, yeah. And uh, uh, with the Tulsa race massacre, race riot, as it was originally called, um, it, it took place in uh, in in May of 1921. Uh, it was uh, sparked by um, possibly a African-American young man uh, uh, allegedly uh, abusing a white woman and uh, on an elevator, although that's very questionable what actually happened. And um, as a result, there was a vigilante group that formed of whites. I'm making this very simple. Uh, but they then went into what was called Black Wall Street. And back then in Tulsa, of course, you had the oil boom, uh, but also the African-American community was doing quite well, and there's quite business there. And they went in and literally destroyed about a thousand homes, uh, burned them down. And there uh, are reports that perhaps even the figure begins of 39 dead known, but it could go up into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Or, and the, the, the important important thing here is to do this as a very step-by-step process to see when the, when the archaeological team goes in, can they do the ground penetrating radar? Can they find those sites? Then you do the exhumations and then you'd... And it, everybody has to keep in mind this is 100 years ago, yeah. so it can be difficult. How do you, how do you define... What would what would look successful to you from a project like that? What are some of the things that you're hoping to be able to to find answers to? I think the critical, and I think so far what I've seen at a distance uh, is that again I go back to the engagement of the community. Yeah. So that the community is there, they're being appraised, they're also being cautioned that this may be too difficult. It's so much time has passed, uh, but that we're making an effort here and that in some way there's memorialization because it is going to be the centennial 
you know, 100 mm-hmm. years later, and that we as a nation recognize that, that this took place because it wasn't only in Tulsa, it was in, in Lane, Arkansas, and many Chicago and many other places that we recognize it. And Clyde Snow and I and spent our careers working overseas an awful lot, and Clyde Snow uh, himself had worked in the 1999 commission that investigated the Tulsa race uh, massacre slash riot. And he was, uh, he was very firm about, look, we need to invest. We need to find out as much as we can. And it may be difficult, but we need to do this. We need to engage the community, and we need to honor and respect those who, who died and those who had to fled. The African-American community that had to flee Tulsa mm-hmm. and leave. Yeah, and uh, often in those cases, in several places, those families were dispossessed of their land and wealth and everything exactly. else. Exactly. And yeah. they, they had to go off to a city somewhere and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, it was uh, – and then the gentrification came of right. that of that that uh, Greenwood district. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it showed up in there's a documentary I saw recently called American Heretics. I don't know if you've had a chance mm. to see it, but it's about some of the religious leaders in uh, Oklahoma City and Tulsa who have basically gone against kind of mainstream, you know, they're either progressives or uh, one of them is this amazing guy who just like thought a lot about God and decided there couldn't be a hell if God was who God was. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, of course, got kind of marginalized by the religion. This guy had originally been one of the oral robbers. People, and anyway, it's a really fascinating film about the history of Oklahoma and Oklahoma politics and everything. Mm-hmm. And they end up talking about the 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 race massacre for a little bit as you know, kind of a really critical part of the history of the state. Yes, you know? yes, definitely. And it's and I think that's uh, we'll see how it goes. It's mm-hmm. going to be step by step. I think uh, always being cautious here. It's step by step. It's this is the way we would always involve our investigations wherever we were. Is we'll we'll go to the site. We'll see what we can find. We can't promise. And you, in forensics, you you follow the you follow everything's consistent until it's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, and you walk, you can walk onto a site and you go. I have multiple working hypotheses. It could be this. It could be this. Or this. But I think here we know there were we know there were deaths, uh, tragic and you know, and uh, let's see how the team can do. Mm-hmm. in their investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, whether you're able to define anything or not, uh, thank you for doing it and really appreciate it. And hopefully it's uh, it's something where uh, we're able to, to, to uh, uncover and, and literally unearth some some stories from this. And, and thank you for joining us today, too. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to have a conversation with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks very thank much, Eric. Thank you. Thank you.